Welcome to the 19th episode of the Known Pleasures podcast. This is where we discuss the music of the post-punk slash new wave movement of the late 70s and early 80s. If you want to hear more of the songs featured in this podcast, click on the link and it will take you to a Spotify playlist especially created by us for this episode. Now here's Patrick to introduce today's band. When their single Vienna reached number two in the UK charts in February 1981, Ultravox became pop stars overnight, but overnight had been a long time coming. In the seven years since their formation, shedding a lead singer on their travels, they'd evolved from New York Dolls and Velvet Underground wannabes to standard bearers for innovative, sometimes epic, electronic pop. With a storyline that included the Bay City Rollers, Brian Eno, Thin Lizzy, Magazine and Glenn Matlock from the Sex Pistols, there'd always been a lot more to Ultravox than dodgy sideburns and mows and horses on cobblestones, champagne in ballrooms and spiders crawling on faces in film noir videos set in European capital cities. In their day, they were never the darlings of the music press, but has the passage of time been kind to Ultravox? And where do they stand now in the world of post-punk rock? Rock. Now, you may wonder about that apparent verbal misstep of rock and roll. <laughs> now that you mention it. You have a stammer? Is that what it is? Yeah, well, we'll get to it later. But in my spelling, which is R-O-C-K-W-R-O-K, which was the idiosyncratic spelling of an early Ultravox single. The first or the second one was the strange spelling? Oh, the second one. The second one? Yeah, although... Because the way you pronounced it, I couldn't tell which one <laughs> was which. Whether it was rock rock or rock well, maybe rock. I, maybe I mispronounced the second one because the second one, it's actually capital R, capital O, Lowercase C, lowercase K. <laughs> Capital W R O K. Which album was this one? The second album, I think. Well, I'm glad we've cleared that up. Anyway, Graham, you can maybe play a snippet of the song at some stage. <laughs> Fascinating. Show that I'm not completely off my rock rocker. So, shall we begin? Well, I suppose Lancashire is probably as good a place as any to start. Our town between Liverpool and Manchester, but slightly. North, a population of 35,000 in 2011. I don't know what it was in 1948. when Significantly <laughs> less. When, when a young lad called Dennis Lee was born um, to a minor slash pugilist father. and a Those m- things usually go hand in hand. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, you but, need, but you need was, to be handy with your fists when you're <laughs> underground for 10 hours a day. Yeah, no, absolutely. Because when they come up, yeah, they're yeah. angry. Yeah, no, that's right, that's right. But, um, yeah, so Dennis Lee was later to become John Fox, but his father was a miner and a fighter who fought about 100 bouts, including taking on all comers at fairgrounds. It's now just called a normal Friday night in England. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) So, yeah, and he was raised a Catholic and sung in the church choir and that kind of stuff. And uh, then headed off to... Art school in Preston in Lancashire firstly and then down to London where the magic began to happen. What year are we talking here? 73-ish. I think he got a scholarship to the Royal College of Art in London to study illustration and he loved his music so he put an ad in Melody Maker for a band listing influences like New York Dolls. And as he said himself, I wanted to do a Warhol, start a warehouse scene where we could be the Velvets and I could meet a new Nico. So I think it was about the chicks. A good rock and roll story usually is. If you picture the scene, it wasn't a great music scene, maybe apart from Bowie. Bit of glam hanging on still. Yeah, yeah. 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 So at the college, he met up with Chris Cross, Steve Shears and uh, Warren Can from Canada. Chris Cross, not his real name. Not his real name, no. Another right. one. And of course, not to be confused with the fellow who sometimes got lost between the moon and New York City. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I can't recall what Chris Cross's real name Chris was. Chris Allen. Oh, okay. But you would, you'd change that, right? If your name was Chris oh, Allen, you're yeah. like, that's not very rock and roll. Well, you'd be I mean, mad not to. Dennis Lee is bad enough. 
Yeah. You've got to become <laughs> John right. Fox if you're Dennis Lee. Dennis Lee did decide to take on the name John Fox and I really liked his reasoning for it, which was John Fox said, John Fox is more intelligent than I am, better looking, better lit. I needed to design someone who could cope with what the job was. I didn't think the previous guy was up to it. Well, there goes my quote that I was going to use. So oh, thank, no, thanks for that. It. I'm going to use it again later. <laughs> exactly what, the same about thing. About yourself or no, about... No, that exact quote. That's all right. You That's can do right. it and I'll say it again. You'll say end. it again later as we'll say yeah. it three times. Um, so this is a, the era of 73, we said, wasn't it? When, um, 73, 74. I think, Steve, yeah, the three of those guys were together as Tiger Lily was, was the first name. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Kicking around in London. But the full band wasn't sort of put together until they found a drummer, really, a permanent mm. drummer in Warren Can in 74. Yeah, they did record a version of... Ain't Misbehaving. Oh, misbehaving. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. It was a promotional single for a movie, I think, yeah, or it was going to yeah. be used in the movie or something like that. Mm, they weren't too right. happy about doing a cover version as their first recording, but they kind of, no. it got paid for, so they were like, well, why not? And it's not that great. I haven't heard it, but I can't imagine it being anything other than terrible. I know for certain. I just wanted to mention that when they placed an ad in Melody Maker, or when uh, John Fox did, when it comes to influences, he um, mentioned all of the usual suspects that we've mentioned before, like, you know, the New York Dolls and Velvet Underground. But he also said, you must be a fan of Billy Fury. Now, there's, a, there's a name that wow. hasn't come up before in our previous podcast. No, no, no. Not a big e- influence on post-punk, Billy Fury. I don't even no. know who Billy Fury is. <laughs> I, I associate, he, he was like slightly wild kind of pop singer Ooh, in the 50s. What, late 50s, early yeah. 60s. Yeah, a bit of a Johnny O'Keefe yeah. sort of style. The Jerry Lee Lewis without the piano. And the marrying your cousin. I don't think he did that either, so there ends the parallels <laughs> with Jerry Lee Lewis. Yeah, okay. Not not the best not the best parallel to draw, but nonetheless. <laughs> anyway, ta- good. Take away the, the piano and the prepubescent cousin. <laughs> and you've got a dead ringer <laughs> for Jerry Lee Lewis. Strange influences, I think, Graham, is what you're trying to get at there. Yes. And I think I would agree with that. I wouldn't have drawn a parallel, but, but no. yeah, they also mentioned Roxy Music and Bowie, all the usual people. I think they kicked around for a while there until they um, got in touch with Steve Lillywhite, the, a young Steve Lillywhite, who uh, hadn't achieved this level of fame. And so uh, that basically got them in front of Island Records, who were more famous for reggae, yeah, and uh, I guess for them to be interested in them was kind of strange. But apparently uh, Steve Lillywhite had been alternating between status quo and Rolf Harris. He was engineering for those sort of people in between <laughs> doing together. the Ultravox. Uh, well, alternating doing the engineering, I should say. I should specify that's what he was doing for them. <laughs> it wasn't some sort of strange three-way. And what exactly do you mean by those sort of people, <laughs> St- status quo and Rolf Harris? Well, all I'm saying is it's hardly... What kind of bridge are you building between those two? Working, working with status quo and Rolf Harris doesn't really lead into working with somebody like Ultravox is no, what I'm trying no, to get no. at. I don't know the songs that he did for them, but anyway, that was how they managed to get their deal with Island Records in, uh, I think it was in 76. Mm-hmm. And they still didn't have a name. Yeah, they yeah. weren't using the name. They were on a, a compilation that was given away with Melody Maker, I think, and on the front of it was just a question mark for their name. They still hadn't actually decided yeah. on anything, so it was really like last minute. But obviously, the record label saw their live gigs, yeah, saw the, yeah. the potential in them, and uh, and gave them a go. And this was when they had the electric violin going as well, so it was a bit of a strange sound with keyboards and a few other things. Yeah, yeah. yeah. so it wasn't wasn't your average rock band, I'm sure. No, no. At the time. And they did experiment with a few different names. Yeah, well, they did before they decided on Ultravox. Mm. They weren't really happy with any of them, were they? No. There was a few examples. Yeah, they were called The Damned for a little while until they realised 
<laughs> Too late. There was a dance. Yeah. And then they were called the Sex Pistols. <laughs> <laughs> then they tried the Clash. And then, that was also taken. And then Pink Floyd. <laughs> so uh, finally settling on Ultravox because it sounded like an electrical device. I think that was that was John. I think they put the two words together, didn't they? Mm. A bit of Latin, uh, yeah. Vox and, and Ultra. Just I guess it sounds cool. And then you put an exclamation mark at the end of mm. it, and it's even cooler. Mm. And so there we are in 1977. We've skipped a couple of years, but things are starting to happen for yes. Ultravox. Yes, they've um, they've decided to record an album. The debut album, and they bring in a fella called Brian Eno to help out. Well, this is open to some argument, isn't mm. it? Depending on who you it's listen to, it yes. is contentious because Steve Lillywhite was still involved because he'd done the demo. Mm. Brian Eno gets quite a bit of credit for this album, but apparently he didn't really do anything. It was just, he was an ideas man and he'd been in Roxy Music and, you know, yeah, that kind yeah. of thing. So he was a bit of a name, but he wasn't a producer as such. No, then, no. anyway. No, well, uh, Warren Can has been quite vocal in terms of saying that he only worked on three or four songs at the most and we didn't use any of his mixes, you know, mm. which is a pretty kind of stark analysis, whereas John Fox has said that Eno understood what we were about and gleefully assisted its realisation. Through him we used drum machines and synths and found some new ways of operating by using the studio as an instrument, for instance. So it's hard to believe that those two people were in the same band at the same time. I can believe that he was an ideas man rather than a producer as such because he he was famously still yeah. using the keyboards with, with the notes written on it and the sound like a picture of a cloud or something next to a certain <laughs> effect that that was the noise it made. Like he yeah, was really yeah, quite, yeah. you know, his skills were quite rudimentary and he was there for that reason, I suppose, but he was a name. And then he was called off to go and work with David Bowie, I think, mm, in the middle in, of this. In Berlin, I think. Yeah. Yep. And so, of course, he left and, and let them get on with it, according to the rest of the band. Yeah, anyway. yeah, yeah. And um, what a great album. Yeah. One other aspect of the recording process is that they were sharing the studio. With the Rolling Stones. With the Rolling Stones. Mm. So 12 hours on, 12 hours off. And the story that comes up more than once when mm. you do a bit of research on, on Ultravox is the fact that uh, Keith Richards was occasionally found comatose <laughs> in, in the studio uh, around the mixing desk when Ultravox came in at about midday. And according to John Fox's telling of the story, you know, he was completely unrousable, if that's a word, um, so they would wheel him out. <laughs> but, but not before turning up one of their own tracks to ear-splitting volume and his foot would start to tap. <laughs> Just rock, kind of rock and roll. <laughs> yeah. Very rock and roll. That's right. That's Can we right. talk about the first single, which was Dangerous Rhythm? Yeah, which, uh, what, predated? I think only just. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. The yeah, album, yeah, sorry, yeah, more or less simultaneously. The album came out in February 77, which yeah. is the middle of punk, really as much as there is a middle of punk and yeah. an 18-month movement. And Dangerous Rhythm is a, is a kind of a reggae thing. Yeah, yeah. Which, which I think is really interesting because it shows that they were, they were listening to that sort of stuff. And to release that as your first single as a rock band, I mean, I guess you had 10CC doing um, uh, Dreadlock Holiday <laughs> yeah, you know, not too much later, but yeah, still, yeah. it seems strange to me to actually do that. And when I hear it now, it sounds really fresh. Mm, it's but a great it would, song. I really yeah, like it. It's a great song. And it would have been a bold move in February '77 to release that as your first single. Yeah, and and it got really good reviews as well. It did. So, yeah, sounds 
magazine said it was the best and most confident debut since Anarchy in the UK, which was quite something for, for that era. Mm. And NME said it was mesmeric, which is quite something. But two months later, NME said, Ultra Rocks are a hype. Just look at their contrived, intense-eyed PVC punk image. That took eight weeks. That was a big turnaround. <laughs> well, as we've said before, that era was very, very straight in, in, in the terms of what you were allowed to do and what you weren't allowed to mm. do. And Ultravox didn't, didn't fit into that. Well, possibly the enemy journalist in question hadn't seen the album cover. Mm. So I'd like the photo of them because the album cover, it's, it's a self-titled album, features all five of them in a row like a... Like a police lineup. Yeah. Yep. And they look a little bit glam, a little bit punk, a little bit like they haven't worked out what their image is. Mm. So you can see why they would have been judged pretty harshly by the image police. In 1977. Yeah. Yeah. But there's a lot of different sounds on that album too. I mean, a song like Wide Boys sounds like the New York Dolls. It reminded me of Japan or the way they didn't really know what they were doing yeah, yeah, absolutely. For, for a few albums. Um, but then you've got I Want to Be a Machine. My Sex, which is a fantastic song and like, like a precursor to where they're going, and spawned the Australian band My Sex. Yeah. No yeah. doubt, with a slightly different yeah, absolutely. spelling. My Sex waits for me Like a mongrel waits Downwind on a tightrope leash And The Wild, The Beautiful and The Damned is a song that's stuck in my head. I haven't been able to get rid of it. It's such a strange song. From that's the one where Billy Curry plays the violin. Yeah, it? that's yeah. right. I mean, any, any band with having an electric violin in 1977 is asking for trouble. It's about as unpunk as you can get, right? Well, the electric violin had been so much defined by electric light orchestra, for instance. So, and which wasn't cool. No, no. well, it was it was the exact opposite of of punk. Mm. Uh, I mean, Pink, Pink Floyd were probably the the only equivalent. Actually, Pink Floyd. Actually, there were several. Sorry, Pink Floyd, Yes, Genesis, and ELO. But ELO were the top of the of those ones beneath the three prog grades. Mm. But the electric violin was much maligned. It was much until maligned. Nash the Slash came along <laughs> a year or two later. For many listeners, for brief, won't know who he is. Brief, Google him. A brief moment of salvation. Have for a look at violin. Nash the Slash. His image alone <laughs> was worth. Um, and I think they might. He might have played with Ultravox too yeah, on the US tour. But um, anyway, the first album. Is one of my favourite albums. I really like it. So um, the, the whole album? It sounds as radical as so many other things that came out that year, but it didn't fit into the narrow yeah, straitjacket yeah. of what was acceptable. And I don't want to, like, labour this point, but so many things are sort of retrospectively labelled in a certain way, but, but then anything kind of went. Like the Stranglers were allowed to be mm. in punk, you know. Uh, all kinds of different things were accepted if they were kind of interesting and different. It was mm. only sort of... Later on that it was like, well, no, your haircut's wrong, you know, your shoes are wrong, the music's wrong, the politics are wrong, you can't be in this movement. And the press turned on yeah, these guys, yeah. as, as you said. But yeah. I think it's a, it's a great debut. And uh, it's certainly an interesting leader towards what else is going to come from yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. It does, for me, hark back quite a lot to their influences. So it, it's interesting that you say that you really like the whole album because, for me, it's a bit patchy in terms of just the influences being a bit too obvious. For a first album, that's a fair call, though. It is certainly understandable. But, yeah, songs like Dangerous Rhythm, I really like. Saturday Night in the City of the Dead, the opening track has a great kind of energy it's to it. a pub rock kind of vibe. That reminded me of Dr Feelgood, actually. Yeah. yeah because that, that, of the harmonica in there. And but everything. the times, I mean, I guess these are the influences of, mm. of a band that has come through at that time, and they're, they're yeah. fairly obvious. I mean, Graham, what did, what did you make I of it? I liked it, but I thought 
like Patrick, I thought it was a bit patchy too with the Dr. Feelgood style. That life's a rainbow's end but a bit more punk, a bit more of a punk delivery. Slip Away, I really like, but that's kind of a really odd, almost like something David Essex would, would sing. <laughs> There's a bit of something for everyone on yeah. there. <laughs> <laughs> when you guys listen to I Want to Be a Machine, do you expect him to start singing Ground Control to Major Tom? Because that's very, <laughs> it's a bit of a Bowie it's very influence. space oddity. I want to be a But who else was, was singing about those kinds of things apart from Kraftwerk? Mm, yeah. Maybe. I mean, that, that I'm aware of anyway in 1977. It's funny because lyrically it's such a classic lead-in to the electronic What's you know, coming. music and Gary Newman and, you know, like a whole generation of musicians who would be influenced so unabashedly by the John Fox, Ultravox era. But that song does remind me a little bit of like a rock opera kind of song, like a three-part... Mm, queen um, kind of thing. ...piece. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> with, with like a, the uh, strings finale... And all that because they hadn't stumbled upon affordable synths or maybe affordable synths, you know, didn't even exist in like late 76. Their instrumentation was limited to real drums and to fairly rudimentary and fairly uninteresting sounding keyboards. Yeah, Their sound was always going to hark back to an earlier era rather than the future simply because of the instruments at their disposal. I, I still think for a first mm. album there's a lot of promise on there and there's enough on it that tells you where they're going. Like yeah. you don't sort of go, wow! I can't believe that they did. It's like those songs that we talked about do really point to where they're going to take. There's the, yeah, there's certainly potential there. Yeah. A- another thing I wanted to point out was on Dangerous Rhythm. Do you guys remember a song by the Walker Brothers called "The Sun Ain't Gonna Shine Anymore"? Mm. There's a bit. I, I promised myself I'd never sing on this podcast, <laughs> but there's a bit on that you song. Promise us that too. <laughs> <laughs> there's a bit on the song where he goes, "When you're without love." There is a bit in Dangerous Rhythm, which is almost exactly that. Time for one of your infamous comparisons. (laughs) I just think that maybe they may have been fans of the Walker Brothers at that point. Double track your own vocal and put some reverb on it. You'll, yeah, you'll, you'll, yourself, you'll be once, the backing you vocalist on there. <laughs> Fantastic. Once the uh, post-production is done, it's going to be a corker. <laughs> I think it's a fair call, everything you've said, but I still think there's enough in there to make you get excited about where they're going. February 1977, we have to remember yeah. that. Um, should we move on to the second album then? The only thing I'll say as a bit of a postscript is the uh, song title, Life at Rainbow's End, open brackets for all the tax exiles on Main Street, close brackets, the exiles on Main Street. I just wonder whether that was slightly influenced by the comatose fellow. The dig at the stones. It was wheeled out of the... Uh, He's still the tapping building. his foot. He's still into it. <laughs> Even though he was completely gone, he was still into yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. I yeah. just want to point out another band that, that released two albums in the same year, October 77. Ha, ha, ha comes out. Mm. That's an achievement. We're trying to compile a list. There was mm. the Stranglers, there was the Jam. XTC. Was it? Yeah, the, yeah, but it seemed to be a thing, didn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just what, two, two albums in 1977 well, was just a thing. Just get them out, you know, get the albums yeah, out, yeah. don't muck around. And it's amazing that they have enough songs to do that. And not only that, they released a single between those two albums, so Young Savage. <laughs> That's right. In May 77, which is 
a really kind of melodic, punky kind of song, and I really like it. It sounds to me like the more rocky Eno songs on his solo albums of around that time. Maybe Eno left some stuff behind when he took off to Berlin. Could be. Could be. Could be. Steve Lillywhite's still involved, so obviously they were happy with his work. He'd, yeah. He'd had to cut Rolf Harris loose <laughs> and move but, on. But the quo remained in his tally decks. I'm sure. Yeah, that's, well, you used to have one of those in the old days, didn't you? You didn't have phone numbers in your phone. Um, the infamous, since the start of the podcast, Rock Rock. Rock, 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 I also really like The Man Who Dies Every Day is yeah. another yeah. kind of pointer. I, th- I was going to say that I thought this was a bit more punk than the other ones. For sure. They were obviously... I mean, it was six months later, Graham. Yeah, a lot had yeah. happened. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> it was October 1977 now and, you know, the future had arrived. The future and had arrived. Well, yeah. Uh, Frozen Ones is another kind of punk song. The album's kind of split between mm. the two moods. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know whether it's a side one or a side two thing, but um, "Fear in the Western World" is another one. And then you have the sort of moodier stuff, I suppose. At the Hiroshima Monomal. That's a great track and mm. and one of John Fox's finest yeah. moments. Yeah, absolutely. I was also going to point out the beginning of "Distant Smile" is a very kind of Eno-y, mm. ambient kind of thing as well. It's quite a long song and it has that kind of intro. Mm. But the end of that song reminds me of "Magazine" and the Buzzcocks. Weirdly, yeah. Like you've got the two things kind of meshed mm. together. I think they were trying to write something something akin to what the Beatles had done mm. in one of their tracks, which was you know the, the weird sort of change of song halfway through yeah yeah once again I really like it I think it, I think it's a great album I mean it's not my favourite of the three and I know you, you probably both would say these two albums the first and second are kind of you know lump them in together a little bit would that be well, a fair call well it's interesting that you have predicted what I was going to say before I said it we've and known each other a long time <laughs> yeah. well you won't predict this I lump the third and fourth together ooh, ooh. contentious, con- contentious. Contra- controversial that's yeah. fighting words yeah. <laughs> okay but anyway, we'll get to them. Yeah. Uh, I just wanted to mention the Roland TR77 drum machine is introduced on Hiroshima Monomore. Oh, you say Hiroshima. Oh, Hiroshima. I say Hiroshima. Mm. Which is right. Oh, so sorry. I don't know. I don't know either. Uh, Hiroshima Monomaua. <laughs> Outlanders de Mau. Yeah, that was a popular yeah. word that year. I think, um, I think. Uh, Japanese words are pronounced without any stress on any syllable, so it should be Hiroshima. Hiroshima I do lump these two albums together with the exception of Hiroshima Monamoa and Man Who Died Every Day because those two songs just stand out so much for me. I think they're both extraordinary songs. And Hiroshima Monomore, I'm struggling to say, because I really (laughs) want to say Hiroshima Monomore. Do it. And that was the B-side to the Rock Rock single that preceded the album by a few weeks. So the Rock Rock single came out on the 3rd of October 1977, and the reason I mentioned the date is that this was three weeks before Nevermind the Bollocks came out. So Hiroshima Monomore was out there before Nevermind the Bollocks, which is just extraordinary to me because it just is such... 
Worlds just, apart. Well, it predicts the next decade of music. You're, You're talking about the Ultravox song, not Nevermind the Box. Uh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. 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 As you mentioned, Graham, the uh, drum machine, TR-77, hmm. really makes it. But, yeah, I mean, the uh, space that's there. The pace the, uh, of it, too. It's slow. Mm, yeah, mm. That's yeah. what I mean. The album's kind of half and half. You've got the punkier stuff, which weirdly they're trying to what fit into the times a little bit more. And then you've got songs like this, which are just their own thing. Maybe they're a little bit more Bowie, if anything else. They're songs, they're proper songs, they're moody songs. They've got space, as you say. They're saying a completely different thing in a different language. You can see them kind of feeling their way around and they'd bought a, uh, an Odyssey synth as well. So that between the first album and the second album. So, so yeah, Billy that, Curry was playing the keyboards. Mm. So he was able to put down the electric violin from time to time. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> Start experimenting with well, the keyboards. Good. But Warren Cann was also doing any of the programming or working on any of these electronic yeah, drum yeah, sounds yeah. or whatever, like in a really rudimentary way. He seemed to have a real feel for this sort of thing. Unlike perhaps a lot of drummers, he completely embraced the he thought te- it was great. technology and the was in no way threatened by it. Yeah, exactly, yeah. Mm. The way that drum machines worked, and this came more into play on the next album, but they were completely untamable mm. <laughs> drum machines. The uh, tempo, you know, it wasn't like find the tempo, you know, on the display and, you know, so it's 111 beats per minute. It was just somewhere between slow and fast. Yeah, and there were four pre-programmed things, basically, like a bossa nova mm. or a waltz or whatever. There was, there was nothing really there. It was designed for people like, you know, on cruise ships to be accompanied <laughs> so yeah, they had yeah, a beat. Yeah. The musician had something to play along yeah, to. Yeah, no, and people who were interested in drum machines and the history of the technology, it's well worth reading a Warren Can interview where he goes into a lot of detail about how he managed to set the tempos on those early drum machines. So he, he had to hook a device up to the drum machine and then he had to hook another device up to that device to the drum machine and he was reading the uh, tempos were in terms of volts mm. so he knew it was a certain number of volts if you know to get a certain tempo and but you, you who knows that sort of stuff <laughs> yeah. i mean in, in, as and, a drummer who knows yeah, that stuff and yeah. he, he worked that out with with the help of a studio engineer i think but he was having to do this stuff live too so if they did yeah, these yeah, tracks right. they would have to rely on these these kind of impetuous machines that would do whatever they wanted yeah, yeah. But look, great album. I'm going to go out there and say it's another great album. You guys, not so much. Yeah. Well, once again, I, I liked both of them. Uh, at the time, I, Systems of Romance was the first album I bought of theirs. So I'd heard bits of each of those earlier albums um, just on the radio and, and from friends. But uh, yeah, I didn't really come on board until Systems of Romance. But yeah, going back and listening to these two albums now, I thought they were both great. Mm. Just when I say patchy, patchy sounds like harsh but criticism. Diverse, but uh, probably still a band that's finding their feet, finding, but finding their feet, quickly, finding their style. I think you know quicker than Japan were mm. in that. You know the way I was saying, coming out of those similar influences yeah. and trying to arrive at something. They this is two albums in a year. <laughs> it's pretty mm. good. It's pretty good. But yeah, I, I take your point. I'm, I'm happy to say that Systems of Romance from the following year. If we're going to talk about that album in September 78 is is the best of the three. Mm. It's a a quantum leap in terms of sound quality, uh, songs, overall package. I mean, Connie Plank was involved, Kraftwerk producer, amongst other things. did a great job. I mean, the sound on it is huge. When you listen to the songs, it, there's, there's a big mm. leap forward. Um, and it is, I still think it stands up now, like I said, considering it came out, you know, less than a year after the second album. 
Mm. Um, there's some really standout stuff and, and a really influential album on the things that were to come. And it was a particularly significant album for Steve Shears. <laughs> Why is that? <laughs> because he wasn't involved. He was asked to leave. His his guitar playing style had, had been felt for some time as a bit limiting for the for the band, which I think is a little bit harsh because the guitar didn't feature that much. It wasn't a hugely important part of the sound. It was equally as important as anything else. He was a bit more of a standard rock and roll guitarist. Given that, I guess, John Fox is directing most of the operations here and getting him to play whatever he wanted to. But be that as it may, he wasn't involved in systems. Robert and Simon was brought in. Yep. Who um, later toured Australia with Magazine oh, as the stand-in guitarist for John McGee. I'll just throw that into Magazine nuts like myself. <laughs> magazine nuts. Um, <laughs> He did a great job on this album. What's the general feeling about Systems of Romance? It starts off with an absolute cracker with slow motion. I always love that song. And that sort of, to me, that really uh, showed the shape mm. of things to come and how they would really embrace technology moving forward. It was a, a bit more re- fully realised, yeah. I suppose, yeah. Well, about, I don't know how many seconds in it is, but, you know, 15, 20 seconds in or whatever, you hear the kind of bass and you go, hang on, that doesn't sound like a bass. <laughs> so synthesizer playing a bass line. Yeah. Who does that? But it's not craft work. It's kind of like a rock song, but with a synthesizer on the bass, which that's just mental. And so from that moment on, it's clear that this album is different to just about every album Everything before else. in the history of popular music. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, there were people doing electronic music, but not like this. The kind of crossover between rock and electronics had never been done like this before. It was a million miles from craft work, for instance. Or ELO. Or ELO. <laughs> yeah. And it really did rock. Yeah. I really liked Someone Else's Clothes for some reason. That, that mm. chorus really sticks with me. Blue Light had a really strong synth bass that was up in the mix. Yeah. There was um, shades of XTC and Buzzcocks in some of them. I, I, I just think that the album is fantastic. And Maximum Acceleration, I'm sure Gary Newman listened to that because oh, the, the yeah. very beginning of it sounds like a Gary Newman Gary song. Newman cites this album repeatedly as what opened the door for him to the, what he could see as the future. And Midge yeah. Ewer was apparently a big fan of this album yeah, too, yeah, which is yeah. interesting. Just for a moment is another great sparse electronic sounding thing, but the standout track for me on this album is Dislocation. Absolutely. I, I loved it then, I still love it now, <laughs> and I was telling you guys off air before that I played this track to uh, my significant other the other night who's a big electronic music fan, a big Depeche Mode fan, and said, just listen to this and tell me when this is from. <laughs> She loved it and couldn't place it and thought it was quite recent. And I said, it's, it's from you know, September 78. You know, it, it predates anything that you really want to mm. talk about in terms of this sounds like where things are going in about five years. Mm. It, it's yeah. quite amazing to listen to and, and still the standout track on a standout album. And even the technicalities of putting the song together, I commend the uh, Warren Can interview to anyone who can 
it's so extraordinarily complicated. It gives a 400-word description of how they had to sync different parts of loops of tapes and, and so well, on. Well, it wasn't a drum machine. No, it wasn't a drum machine. It was, it was, mm. it's, it's actual drums or whatever he's done. He's just done tape loops or something, really rudimentary kind of ways of doing it, which I don't, I don't understand. I've read it a few times and I still yeah, couldn't yeah. figure out how they did it. But it sounds like the future. It's a particular type of musical revolution that it's predicting, the more kind of moody... Mm. reflective side of things. And then crossfade is a different type of musical revolution of a kind of a more danceable, groove, sparse kind Mm. of synthesizer kind of music. So those two songs among several others. Yeah. Remembering September 1978. And it's still got that cold kind of alienated vibe, which, you know, a lot of people took and ran with as well. But I think it's the culmination of everything they'd been trying to do. And, And apparently... I don't know if we get into the end of this album, but John Fox had already written his next album, solo album, while this was being recorded. So he was already leaving the band by this point. So he's already moved on from this. You're, you're kind of having your mind blown by this and he's like, um, I'm already onto something else. Yeah, yeah. You know, which is, um, he's a really interesting guy. We haven't mentioned this, but one thing that interests me is that he um, he was quite old, um, John Fox. Yeah, that's right. Mm. He was born like 48, I think it was. 90, mm, that's yeah. right, yeah. So, yeah. Um, so he, was, he was 28 or 29 when the first two albums mm. came out. Well, no wonder yeah. the press didn't like them for that <laughs> yeah, reason. Right. That wasn't a popular move. <laughs> no. Yeah, but um, he was old enough to be a fan of... For instance, the Beatles' Revolver album. Yeah. Well, the, the 60s was his big thing. Yeah. Apparently the psychedelic era yeah. of the 60s is what opened well, his mind. When You Walk Through Me, apparently the beat, according to Warren Can, was uh, lifted from Tomorrow Never Knows. <laughs> That song is quite Beatlesque. Yeah, it's a bit psychedelic. Yeah, and the uh, backwards guitars of the Jam were <laughs> your favourite again. W- from the same song. Same yeah. so yeah. Those Beatles, to, they had an influence, to, didn't they? Tomorrow yeah. Never Knows <laughs> is proving to be quite influential yeah. on yeah. a movement a decade later. Funny that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, I'm going to go with the best of the three John Fox albums. Yeah. By, yeah, by some absolutely. distance, we all yeah. we all agree on that, yeah. do we? Yeah. yeah. There was hints earlier on as to where they were going, but it, it just all seemed to come together on mm. this album. And it's a really interesting bridge to their next phase of their career, which we won't go straight into. But it's almost like they're on the brink of something, and they've found something. Yeah. That's mm. going to work. Yeah. And yeah, yeah it and this, possibly would have worked. And this album, which could have been number one all over the world, really, or at least you know top ten, because it's so so many snappy songs, mm. so many just really interesting songs. And the album stiffed; it, it didn't do anything. No, none of the three albums charted. I couldn't find chart positions for no. any of them. I think they were about to do a US tour around about the turn of the year, seventy eight, seventy nine, mm. and on around about New Year's Day. They get a phone call. Maybe the day after Reducing it to, yeah. Being a public holiday. Public holiday. (laughs) The gist of the phone call was, it was from Island Records. Oh, good old Island Records. They support us through three albums that didn't chart. (laughs) Fabulous. But we've finally cracked it. We think we've found the formula. Every, virtually every song on this album is a classic. Mm. The sky's the limit. Hang on, the phone's ringing. And it's Island Records saying, you're dumped. Guess what, boys? 
We've had enough. And We've thanks. seen the future and you're not it. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> We've got this girl called Grace Jones and we're going to put all our money into her. We're going to give that a go. <laughs> oh, that's right, yeah. They did do the tour, but as I said earlier, John Fox had already made up his mind that he was going to leave the band. But he only actually told the band during the US tour. Yeah, which is always a good move. Yeah. That increases tensions. <laughs> um, and so, he was never a fan of touring. Never enjoyed it. No, and in his head there was this electronic thing, like pure electronics. I think he was fascinated by that. He Mm. found the idea of a band cumbersome and, I mean, the fact that they'd been dropped by the label probably didn't hurt in terms of his decision. Mm. John Fox was in the band from 73 to 79, which is six years, but three albums, pretty momentous. But, yeah, the band are left hanging Well, after their finest moment. mm, What, what, What to do? Well, yeah, so clearly it's all over. They had a pretty good run. I mean, <laughs> consistent failure aside, they had a good yeah. run. Three great albums, none of them charted <laughs> yeah. and dropped by the record label. Singer leaves in the middle of the tour. Yeah, that's right. Things are looking, you know, Grim. not so great. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'd like to switch the scene to uh, a one-bedroom flat in a tenement block in Glasgow. It's 1953. Wow, you have switched the scene. I have, yes. It's gone back in time, <laughs> hugely. It's 1953. There are five members of the Your family... In this one bedroom flat. Five members of the your family. Of your family? Of my family? <laughs> your family. You might want to clarify. Well, Jim Your, mm-hmm. as he was at the time, of his family, real kind of struggle town territory. And this kid, he's raised right. He's well looked after by his parents. But he is, you know, like a um, working class kid who um, gets fascinated by music, plays in the usual kind of knockabout bands, ends up in a band called Slick. They're doing the rounds, the pubs and so on, in Glasgow, along with a hundred other bands, including a band called the Bay City Rollers. And he's, he's calling himself Jim. His name is Jim, it's but Jim. in Slick, there's already someone called Jim in the band. So Jim the Elder, or Jim the Bigger, says, there's no room for two jummies. <laughs> I think that's exactly where we would have said it. Apologies to all our Scottish listeners for <laughs> yeah, cultural yeah. appropriation there. I know from personal experience how much Scottish people enjoy Australians attempting to do a Scottish accent. So, <laughs> okay. So. I'll keep that in then. <laughs> yeah. That's right. So the older or bigger Jim said, we'll call you Jim backwards, which is Midge. Mm. So so he's now Midgeur. Yeah, so mm. I'd thought of it as, you know, like a traditional Scottish name, but in fact it's... It's a strange name. I've always wondered. Yeah, yeah. Well, I've learned so, something tonight. It is peculiar. but mm. So Slick, who were doing okay, playing their own song, but not doing incredibly well, they fall in with a management group connected with Bay City Rollers, and Bay City Rollers have had several songs written for them by the songwriting team Bill Martin and Phil Coulter. And those guys wrote the early Bay City Rollers hits, having previously written songs like Puppet on a String and Congratulations. Classics. So they've got proper songwriting pedigree and they present Slick uh, forever and ever. They perform this song. It goes to number one, knocks off Mamma Mia from number one in the UK charts, January 76, and they are pop stars. We should 
point out that the band didn't play on the singles. Mm. This was a real... Um, it's a real Archie's job. Yeah, yeah. The monkeys? A, yeah, the monkeys, mm. yeah. Similar kind of thing. Style at the time. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Did you listen to the slick singles though? Because um, there's about three singles that seem to start off with what sound like monks chanting. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. Like, it's like a Gregorian chant. Kind of. it, it, it was like their style. It was their thing. What next for Slick? Well, they broke up. Kenny Hislop went on to join Simple Minds. He was only in Simple Minds briefly, but played the drums on Promise You a Miracle. And he was in the infamous love song film clip where the band gets into a brawl. Oh, that's right. Yeah, we've, we've referenced that before, haven't we? <laughs> but uh, yeah, around about that time, the music journalist Caroline Kuhn had seen Slick and she was talking to Glenn Matlock, who just left the Sex Pistols and was wanting to form a, form a band. She recommended him to be singer. So suddenly he was in a band. Mish was in a band with Glenn Matlock from the Sex Pistols. Rich Kids. So the Rich Kids weren't around for a really long time, but they were hyped up as the next big thing in the media, I think, in the, mm. sorry, in the, in the music press. Um, and they did record an album called Ghosts of Princes in Towers, which got to number 51. 78, are we talking about? Uh, they were uh, from March 77 to December 78, the Rich Kids. Right. Yeah, yeah. Short-lived and, career. And the album came out in August 78, and I think the three of us differ on yeah. this, but I quite like the album. I think it's got some... Um, I, I only listened to a couple of tracks and I uh, couldn't see why they'd ever been recorded. Yeah, I didn't mind them. They seem to be in the same ballpark as Generation X, that kind of thing. But um, I think it's interesting to know that Midge was uh, accepted in to the punk fold, I guess. Yeah. Um, he mentions that on his first day in London, they rehearsed three songs. They supported the police in Islington and they, um, they opened for the Boomtown Rats in Camden. And then they went to a warehouse party where all the members of The Clash and Sid and Nancy were. And he was just uh, really taken aback by this bizarre world that he was kind of thrust into. And he thought that all these, these punks were going to hate him. He turned out, but they'd all seen him on top of the pops and slick. <laughs> and um, they all just wanted to have a good chat. <laughs> <laughs> so, so he was he was certainly accepted into the in, into the scene. Mm, although know. apparently Billy Idol was dead rude. Yeah, but that's Billy Idol. <laughs> but he apologised about a year later when they met again. So, yeah. so we've established what Midyear was up to. Yes, yes. Uh, at the what the tail end of '78, he had got a little bit interested in synthesizers. He played a bit of synth, I think, on the Rich Kids album, and he had a little bit of studio time, and he. And the drummer from the Rich Kids, Rusty Egan, were, um, yeah, they were kind of looking for, 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 for something else to do. And Rusty was mates with a fellow called Steve Strange. Mm -hmm. So they all kind of ended up playing a bit of music together. And Rusty, who was apparently a million ideas a day kind of guy, said, hey, why don't we get this guy from Ultravox into the band, these guys from Magazine into the band, and we'll just see what happens. But, there, said, but there was also a club involved around all of this. The main, yeah, the, yeah, the yeah. main fulcrum was these various new romantic clubs that uh, yeah, Rusty Egan yeah. and Steve Strange were involved yeah, in. Yeah, well, this was in the wake of Rusty having started up a club where he DJed, which mm. was basically an homage to uh, Bowie, mm. but yeah, where all the kind of kids who'd outgrown punk 
or were too young for punk, mm. wanted their own scene. So yeah, you had three members of magazine. Yeah. Dave Formula, Barry Adamson and John McGeoch. Yep, and yeah. Billy Curry. Billy Curry from Ultravox. Who Mid-Jewel. was at a loose end for some reason. Yeah, with the Springs is back to Billy Curry. Had nothing much to do at the time. No, no, that's Mid-Jewel right. Mid-Jewel was, was kind of wondering where that might, where the next step might be. I've got a great uh, quote from Simon Reynolds about this group. There's, there's six or seven of them. He describes them as a confederacy of punk failures looking for a second shot at stardom. <laughs> I like that. I think that's a great description of, of <laughs> yeah. the seven of them because more, more or less it's pretty accurate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and we're talking about Visage. And just extraordinary confluence where, you know, Steve Strange, who was the doorman at this club, which morphed from Bowie Night into Music for Heroes into into Blitz. So Steve Strange was determining who got into this club because it was basically if he liked the look of them, they got in, and if he didn't, they didn't, and it became the place for a, a certain kind of person to be seen. Well, the next generation of bands yeah. went through there. Well, if you want to talk about Spandau Ballet and, and Boy George Culture Club and, and various others. That's right, yeah, yes. Yeah. And a whole kind of look was born as well as the kind of music because they were all listening to the same kind of music, Bowie and Roxy Music and Kraftwerk and so on, the kind of bands that were being played at Blitz. Everyone brought their own individual style in a sartorial way into the club, but obviously, you know, certain types of looks evolved. So there was a real Blitz look which evolved into the Neuromantic look. So Visage was born without Midge very much at the helm. Billy Curry had been touring with Gary Newman and Chris Payne, the synthesizer player for Gary, had been jamming on a song during sound checks on the Newman tour, a song called Toot City, which morphed once Midge wrote some lyrics into Fade to Grey. Fade to Grey right now, I think the most unlikely lyric in the history of pop music would be Un homme dans un gars isolé Une valise à ses côtés Deux yeux fixes et froids Montre de la peur lorsqu'il se tourne pour se cacher Was that the line uh, said by Rusty Egan's girlfriend? Yes, and mimed spectacularly badly in the film clip Oh, right. By someone else. Well, you know, there's a story that Rusty Egan's girlfriend later came back to the band saying that because she translated the lyrics into French, that uh, she deserved a songwriting royalty. Yeah. In the end, she settled for seven thousand pounds. But well, that bad. was ne- next best thing. Yeah, I guess so. Well, Even there was a hit. Sell that many copies. It was a big <laughs> hit. Fade to grey. I mean, it was huge. It was a hit here. It was a hit here. The album was was successful. There was a bunch of singles off it. Some still a good album. You're a fan. I am a fan. Yeah, I loved it at the time. I mean, <clears throat> once again, the influences were all there, but it seemed to be pointing towards something. And I don't think I would have heard of Ultravox by that stage. Certainly not Systems of Romance. So this, this sort of stuff seemed to come out of nowhere, sonically. Yeah, and, yeah. and this and, um, and Bowie sort of coming back to prominence with Ashes to Ashes around yeah. the same time. The timing of all this is a little bit peculiar because while the Visage album was being recorded, basically mid-session, Midge got a phone call from Phil Linnett, from Thin Lizzy, saying can you come on a US tour as our guitarist? And one of my favourite quotes from Midge about Phil Lynott was that he was so softly spoken, you wouldn't have heard him behind a matchstick. And I don't know what that means. No. But <laughs> I would have thought he was thin. Well, That makes some sense. I'm not sure, but I really like the sound of it. But uh, yeah, so Midge co-wrote a song called Get Out of Here, 
with Thin Phil. Lizzie, right. So he was a proper, you know, they were they were properly collaborating, and that song appeared on the Thin Lizzy album Black Rose. And so, I mean, you know, he was kind of ensconced in the Thin Lizzy world at the same time as he was recording the Visage album, and the the kind of juxtaposition of the two, I think, is is fantastic. It's, it's unusual strange. because he looked a certain way, and um, that was the uh, the worry for him. Yeah. Is that he wouldn't look right within Thin Lizzy. But um, apparently, according to Thin Lizzy, what they really didn't like about him was that he played a Yamaha guitar. And they said, you can't play a Yamaha guitar in Thin Lizzy. <laughs> it's got to so be a they gave, they gave, No, Gibson. They gave Gibson. Gibson to play. Oh, okay. During the Visage sessions with Billy Curry coming in and playing, Midge was kind of gradually realised that, you know, there might be an opening as uh, Ultravox singer, singers Ultravox didn't have a singer. And uh, yeah, so he was kind of hoping that someone would suggest that he took over from John Fox. And that did ultimately happen. And Midge's first rehearsal with Ultravox was April 79, just to kind of give the context. So I think he started rehearsing with Ultravox and was still doing the Visage sessions and then went on the US tour with Thin Lizzy. <laughs> so he was a busy man. It was just extraordinary for someone who seemed like he could easily have been on the scrap heap a couple of times already, and he was only mid-twenties by now. So suddenly he was in with Ultravox, and it was a perfect fit in terms of what the four of them had apparently decided they then wanted to achieve, which was a little bit different to the mm. systems of romance. So it was quite quick after John Fox leaving, though. A, a yeah. month, if you're saying April. So they didn't they didn't uh, cool their heels for very long. <laughs> no, that's right. So they they start recording. They've got some songs already. They've got some songs. And this was uh, well into 1980 now, July 1980. Yep, that uh, Vienna came out. With Connie Plank again at the helm. I think it's the technical term. Again, I believe that the song Vienna was what they considered the strongest song on the album so they named the album after after it so it was kind of like this is the one we're going to go with and it was yeah. like is it a departure from Systems of Romance I mean you're saying Graham, that the third and fourth albums are closely yes, I, I, linked in your mind a lot of Ultravox fans hardcore ones consider that you know there were the John Fox years and then all of a sudden Midjure came on board and they sold out but when I look at Vienna I don't see just electronic pop songs for instance I think there's a lot of parallels between the two albums, Systems of Romance and Vienna, even like All Stood Still, which is my favourite ultra-rock song, there is no melody in that chorus. We stood still. We're standing still. I guess from where I'm standing, there's not a million miles between I Can't Stay Long and Passing Strangers. Quiet Men and New Europeans. I'd say Passing Strangers is probably a bit more in line with a, a sort of a classic pop song melody. It's actually quite a straight song, hmm. isn't it? Like it's quite a like yeah. a guitar-y kind of rock song. Sleepwalk yeah. has a, a great verse melody, yeah. but it's not the Ultravox of the previous mm. album. I would only dispute what you're saying in that any edge that they had was removed. Mm. And you can't argue with a top 15 album, a hit album, uh, a huge worldwide hit in Vienna, which is still played today. Like, I would put Vienna aside. The song? Yeah, the song, because the Vienna, the song... Doesn't sound like anything else on the album. Locked in the cold air Freezing breath on a window pane 
It's an unusual song, but you can hear that it's kind of radio friendly, I guess. It's probably their most well known song still, yeah, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm absolutely. guessing yeah. if you asked anybody yeah, of absolutely. our age. Yeah, I guess what I'm saying is that. Um, Midgeur didn't come into the band and say, okay, um, I'm coming in here and I'm going to take my pop sensibility and I'm going to turn Ultravox into a vehicle for my own pop songs. Uh, you know, the album is cold and alienating, and which is what good electronic music is. Mm. The one thing I would say is that uh, Vienna, fidelity-wise, it's a lot crisper and cleaner. Mm. So a lot more faithful? Yeah. Mm. So, But it's still Connie Plank. Yeah. Well, the but, production yeah. is great on it. I mean, I, think, I, think yeah. I really like the album, and it was probably the first Ultravox album. Maybe not the first. Maybe I had heard a bit of the earlier ones. And I remember really liking it, but I still kind of thought something's changed. Like something's been lost and something's been gained. As well, but yeah. whether whether you prefer one or the other is open to interpretation. There was a spirit of kind of musical exploration on mm. systems of romance where it was like, what sound can we get out of this device? That kind of thing on you know more or less every single track. Whereas Vienna, you can kind of there are no major surprises, even though it's quite an eclectic album. I mean, you've got the craftwork ish Mr. X, you've got mm. the some more standard kind of electronic rock songs, and you've got Vienna, which is, you know, almost has like a choral, you know, medieval kind of quality or something. Um, so, you know, it certainly has diversity, but it's pretty uniform in its sound compared to the three previous albums. They may have been putting Midge aside. I reckon the other three guys were probably like, they lived with three failed albums mm. and they thought, well, maybe we should try and clean the sound up a bit and start selling a few records. There was a lot of bad feeling about between them with John Fox leaving as well. Mm. Um, Warren Can repeatedly says, you know, that Midju is the best guitarist we ever had and, and he kind of always praises Midju and, and takes every opportunity to, to sort of have a go at John Fox. I think it was a difficult relationship and John Fox himself says he never enjoyed being in a band <laughs> and, being, and touring and being having to make decisions for other people in relation to other people. Yeah. It, like I said, it's hard to argue with success. I mean, it must be quite galling to John Fox, you would think. Mm. That as soon as he leaves, they have success. And he would say, you know, he was a large part of that, even though yeah. it's a completely different mm. band in many ways. Mm. It sounds different. Put these two albums next to each other, take the singing out, be interesting to see that as a comparison. Mm. Yeah, yeah. The um, All Stood Still as well, I always thought that that may have inspired to cut a long story short. I think a lot of people at the time heard All Stood Still and thought, yeah, that's a great bass <laughs> I think line. this period in music was was hugely influential on a lot of, mm. you know, subsequent things, as we said. Even in Australia, there were a lot of bands that sort of started to, to try to do something similar. And I mean, I don't know about other countries, but maybe Devo yeah. was sort of trying to do <laughs> yeah. similar things. I don't know. In terms of um, All Stood Still, my only real bone to pick with this album is the lyrics in the chorus because I'm a I bit concerned. I don't know where this is going to go. I'm a bit, conce- I'm a bit concerned. Th- this is after the Stranglers. About, about oh. <laughs> <laughs> yes, this is not going to be good. Yeah, it isn't, it isn't misogyny this time. It's uh, logic. Logic, okay. Because, Which is worse in some because ways. Because we've got everyone standing still. Right. 
you know, like we all stood still. And then subsequent to we all stood still, we're given the information that still stood still. And so it's <laughs> still... It's just a grammatical error. But it's still separate from, from like the rest of us? No, but we're still stood still. We haven't moved. Oh, we're still stood yeah, still. Yeah, we're still stood still. <laughs> we're still waiting. That's what I took it Maybe to Maybe I've been misinterpreting it for the last 38 years. Yeah, there we go. Years, yeah, because Glad I... Glad I could help. Because as I... <laughs> As I have communicated to you guys previously, what cruel parent names a child still? <laughs> oh, I get it. And so it. Is that where that came is from? Is that what you were talking about? No, I, I always just understood it to being, yeah, still, stood still. Could be a comma maybe in there. I thought you would have spoke about the redundancy. Once you say we all stood still, that kind of covers everyone. That's why I'm wondering, we're still, we're still in the next room earlier? Or? <laughs> he was still stood still, that's all. He was just waiting. Anyway. Okay, you have... I think I've I think I've yeah. solved this mystery. Yeah, no, no, no. I feel I'm feeling enlightened now. No, this, this is already my favourite podcast. <laughs> One last thing I guess I would say about Vienna is that for all the kind of notion of it being like a cleaner, poppier album than earlier Ultravox records, they did still open the album with a seven-minute instrumental. They didn't immediately go to the snappiest song, and they released Vienna as the third single after mm. Sleepwalk and Passing Strangers. So, I mean, I guess that might have been strategic, but it was still buried. I mean, I would have thought that you'd either have it as the lead-in single or the second single. I know, think they like to fight with the record company. You know, that seemed to be a thing that they enjoyed doing, so they probably just made those decisions to be difficult. Well, maybe they didn't think that that was. The- no, they did. The record company didn't think it was a single. They thought it was too long and too slow. Okay. And... And, uh, you know, weren't that keen on it as a single. So, I mean, we can say that now because it was a huge hit, but the band really liked it and named the album after it. But it the record was. company didn't really have the, the uh, same faith in it. How wrong they were. Yes, yes. And, of course, the song got to number two on the UK charts. Kept out by one by, of our own. By one of our favourite Australian musicians, Joe Dolce. I thought he was Italian. Oh, that's how good he was. Yeah. That's how he had fooled you, Craig. He was part, he's part Australian, part Italian, part American. Mm. And in subsequent years, like within five or six years, Joe Dolce was working in a cafe just up the road from my place, waiting tables in uh, Melbourne, and he loved a game of chess during his breaks. So he was quite, quite a cerebral character when he wasn't singing What's the Matter You. There were many, many sides, many hues. The many hues of Joe Dolce. Joe, Joe Dolce. <laughs> that was the name of his album, wasn't it? It was. <laughs> Georgie Zampia. Um, if we're going to move on from Vienna... I think we should keep going with Joe Dolce, actually. Can... <laughs> what was his problem? Why was he asking people to shut up? Was <laughs> <laughs> it was a different times, Graham. Okay. Different times. Sorry, carry on. I, I just wanted to point out that John John Fox hadn't been lying idle. Well, he was a quiet man, John Fox. He was Fox. a quiet man, and that was how he described himself leaving the band, as the quiet man. He had pretty much immediately, as I said previously, had written the songs for his debut album, Metamatic, while he was still in Ultravox. He released mm. that in January 80. The interesting thing, well, there are many interesting things about this album, and I'm just going to go into it a little bit, because he, he basically self-produced it with an engineer in an eight-track studio, and for the majority of the songs they only use six of the eight tracks it sounds extraordinary to Mm. me i still love this album it 
very heavily dub influenced album, and he was listening to a lot of that sort of stuff in space. Mm. And he it's really, pretty funky for an, yeah. an electronic album. Well, of the, of that era, there's there's real bass on it. The rest of it is rudimentary drum machine and, and keyboards. And he kind of decided that that was the future, and he was going to kind of like delve into that sort of side of music. And and I think for an album that came out in January 1980, it sounds extraordinary. I mean, mm. it's it's something to listen to now. Two of the songs on it, He's a Liquid and Touch and Go, had been performed with Ultravox yeah. when he was in the band. So he took those with him, not crediting any of Ultravox with any of the work that they may or may not have done on them. But um, as a solo project, that album, No One Driving, Burning Car, lots of things, very futuristic, very alienated, very cold, very dubby. Met- metal beat as well. Metal beat. Mm, I love I mean, Metal Beat. Mm. Gary Newman would have wet himself when he yeah. heard this yeah. album for sure. And and, and I, I think it, it reached number 18. So John Fox also managed to get a hit mm. album that year yeah. before yeah. Ultravox did. So that would have that would have been some um, some great little you know back and forth over that, I'm sure. Yeah, he actually appeared on Top of the Pops. He did. Under, he, he looks fantastic on yeah. that too. Yeah. It very, very of the future. It sounds like the future and looks like the future. His success predated... Ultravox Vienna. Yeah, so yeah, by some by some time. He had kind of proven himself and then it was up to Ultravox to say, okay, this Vienna album, how's that going to go? But they couldn't be more different. No. In some ways they're exactly the two albums that you might expect them to make, John Fox's album and, and Ultravox's album. Um, I will say that I think that John Fox was more of an artist and you've said, Graham, well, he was an art student, but I think in general he sees himself as an artist. Like he, when he left music, he, he kind of went back to doing art and... Yeah, he went back to being a... I think he did some... Gra- graphic artist? Graphic yeah. artist. He yeah. had some book yeah. covers from some very famous books. Can I just say that I love the John Fox Mathematic album? I bought it at the time. I've got it on, on vinyl. I remember playing it to some high school friends of mine. and They, they hated just, it? Yeah, they hated it. They just couldn't believe it. You could listen to something that had no guitar on it. It had no anything on it. <laughs> it was like a dub album. Yeah. I didn't even know what a dub album was, but it was so sparse. The yeah, pla- yeah, plaza yeah, yeah. was great. On the plaza, we're dancing so No One Driving, I think that was the second single, wasn't it? No One Driving? Yeah. He's a Liquid, which was written about Dave Formula. Oh, nice. <laughs> Sorry, I, I, I went for ages trying to find a, a, a gag to go with He's a Liquid and I couldn't That's think of one. That's not bad. <laughs> um, but yeah, uh, and, and as I said before, Metal Beat, uh, as mm. a song which I'd forgotten about until I'd listened to the album again just recently. Oh, no. We should point out his vocal style. Some of the harmonies he does on it are really yeah, unusual, weird. Unusual, yeah. And he says himself, it's, a lot of it's just sort of almost speaking. It's not really singing. Mm. And he, he, he's not the greatest singer, but he has a really inst- distinctive voice. Yeah. And in Ultravox, his vocals were very much to the fore. But he kind of like reduces the vocals down to this, you know, another Spartan part of the song. It's it's really weird. That album still sounds like it, I don't know where it came from, yeah, even yeah. now and that's like whatever it is, 1980. Yeah. I have to say that when I heard Underpass for the first time, which I think might have been on a cassette that I bought a, a compilation of a virgin artist ah, yes, yes. called uh, Vinyl Virgins. Oh, um, I remember that. Which that. had a whole bunch of great songs, like Marianne by Human League and uh, I think Magazine were on it with yep. Song from Under the Floorboards, live version might have been. Mm. And yeah, when I heard it, it was like this is one of my favourite songs of all time. The first time I heard it, and I was obsessed with, with Gary Newman. And so, you know, kind of fitted into that framework. 
but yeah, for me, it was just like I could listen to this song 24 hours a day. And so, yeah, I was completely blown away by it. And the album, when I heard it, wasn't, you know, 10 or 12 no. underpasses, but it was still pretty amazing. Yeah, and it still sounds great now, and it's hard to say about a lot of albums. I don't think it's dated because I don't think it has any peers. No, <laughs> it's got no. nothing that you can really compare it to. No, I mean, obviously there are shades of craft work, but he's mm. taken it in a slightly different direction. Yeah. I just wanted to point out that John Fox was still keeping his hand in. And, in fact, he had another album. He did. Up His Sleeve. The Garden. September the following year, 81. To number 24. A hit. John Fox hitting them out of the park. Two in a row. <laughs> Couldn't buy a hit in Ultravox. And uh, so so what do we think about The Garden? I, I really liked it. At the time, it's a lot lusher and it's a rejection of Metamatic's bare bones sound. Um, Europe After the Rain. <laughs> Like a gun, great songs. I don't hold it with the same affection in my heart as Metamatic, only because it's not so revolutionary. But I like anything John Fox does to this day. I went and saw him maybe seven or eight years yeah, ago. Yeah, we all saw him in what, 2010 ish? Something like that with the maths. Yeah, played here in Sydney and it was a fantastic gig. And I was yeah. so glad that I got to see him in some form. And I think, as I say, I think he's a true artist. And I yeah. think whatever he does, he puts his heart into it. If it's successful, great but that's not the reason he does anything and I really admire him and I admire people like that because it's it takes a real clarity to, yeah. to live your life like that. Yeah. I think it's fantastic. Literally staying focused on exactly what he wanted to do yeah. and the garden in a way couldn't be more different to Metamatic. Well, he wanted that, didn't he? He yeah. said, I want to do something completely opposite to that and bring back, you know, guitars and keyboards and, the sa- and lush sounds again, mm. and, which he did. Well, it did is, very well. It's almost, to use a word I think I've only used once before in our podcast, but but uh, pastoral. That's a good word. Um, yeah, and it does have a kind of a spiritual quality to me, almost like church music. And mm. um, I was 17, child of a Catholic upbringing. A callow youth. A <laughs> callow youth. And for me, that kind of spiritual, kind of hymnal kind of quality, although not, not a practising Catholic, at the time having rejected it as, as all good 17-year-old Catholic kids do. Uh, there was yeah. an incident. There, there was no incident. <laughs> <laughs> there was no incident, let me make it perfectly clear. But, um, yeah, I mean, um, the, the garden just is kind of clean and clear and fresh, rich and bright, and I'm making it sound like a shampoo, but it's a, like a really startling piece of songwriting and production. Like, it mm. just absolutely sparkles. Graham, you said you were enjoying it anew? Yes, because I didn't have this at the time. Oh. And, uh, yeah, I had to listen to it, Europe After the Rain. Yeah, the, the two singles are great, the whole album. Okay, now I want to steer things back towards Ultravox. The next album was Rage and Eden. Guys like much well, I like that Connie Plank was involved. <laughs> um, I I will so say like the personality of the producer. I like the personality of the producer, and I agree with John Fox again that, that <laughs> Connie Plank is one of the production geniuses of, of the uh, of any century. Um, I would listen to anything that he was involved in. I had probably stopped listening to Ultravox. No, I had stopped listening to Ultravox at this point. Um, so yeah, I, I just know the singles.
Well, I'm a fan. You're a fan? You like I'm the a fan. Song? Yeah, I reckon I probably prefer it to Vienna. Oh, okay. In that they went into the studio with absolutely not one note written and they spent three months recording it and it feels to me really cohesive. It's quite dark compared to Vienna, but I think it really works as an album, even though there are a couple of songs which I'm not a huge fan of, but but the voice I think is just a big grand pop song. <laughs> has an extraordinary voice, I think, like really strong and really pure, and I like it. I think a lot of the songs work really well, and Thin Wall has that, I think, really extraordinary bass line going all the way through it, and I can't think of a song that has a bass line threaded through it like a ribbon all the way through, so it's barely a bass line. You know, it's bottom end, but... It's just a pulse, really, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, mm. but it ebbs and flows. Wall as a song is really an extraordinary thing because it is so sparse and it's quite a sparse album considering how grand it is. Um, and uh, yeah, Stranger Within, I really like beautiful violin riff and uh, yeah, so I, I'm, I'm definitely a fan of Rage in Eden. Okay. Well, which brings us to the final album that we're going to talk about. Yeah, for, we, for Ultravox. We, we had to draw the line somewhere with, with, we do. with Ultravox. And 1982 with uh, Quartet, October 82. Yep, another hit. Change yeah. of producer, though. Change I always of, like to see who's behind, the, who's behind who, the knobs. Yeah, who was? It was George was that, Martin. Who was that guy? The guy who produced those, those guys from <laughs> Liverpool that had a few hits, the Beatles. Uh, I An think it was extraordinary an, choice. Yeah, interesting idea to get him involved, uh, given that they'd been very successful with Connie Plank, just felt like they needed a change. Uh, maybe like Graham, they weren't as happy with their album as you were, Patrick. Mm. Possibly. <laughs> Had uh, four singles on it. Him is the one I have a real trouble listening to, the one that paraphrases the Lord's Prayer, I believe. As I said, uh, I didn't hear this at the time. You heard the singles? Uh, yeah, I heard, I think, Reap the Wild Wind. But, yeah, no, there's some great moments on it. And once again, I like the production, but um, I think I'd, I'm probably still going to have to spend a bit more time on it. But I did, I, I did like it, like uh, much more than uh, the previous album. But in, in, in a post-punk context about what we're, yeah, I guess, yeah. doing this podcast about, is it breaking any new ground, these couple of albums? Is it doing anything noteworthy? It's, mm. it's nice and it's good. I think Rage and Eden certainly did because okay. I don't think it sounded like anything else. And I think they were still ahead of the curve in terms of the technology. I think they were becoming, as you were alluding to, the template for a lot of other bands. And I think, funnily enough, you could say the same about the Systems of Romance album inspiring a lot of disastrously bad bands in the mid-'80s. Mm. But for me, Quartet is not for me. Uh, it's your least favourite of the six, yeah, would you yep, say? Yeah, definitely. And we probably all agree on that. And I think it's got a lot to do with the technology of the times. That, to me, it sounds like a lot of other albums of that era. So a song like Reap the Wild Wind, for instance, could be by China Crisis. Mm. And they've adopted quite a drum machine-y sort of sound, like a pretty standard 1982 drum machine kind of sound, or it feels like that to me. Mm. And for me, the songs were, I wouldn't say necessarily overblown, but they kind of lack the distinctiveness and they're trying to be very grand. They weren't ahead of the curve anymore, I think no, it's, it's no. fair to say.
And I mean, bringing George Martin in was an interesting move, certainly the opposite of a revolutionary move. Mm. And I mean, the last album that George Martin had been had produced prior to Quartet was Time Exposure by Little River, Little River Band. And so he was on a hiding to nothing. And the album he produced after Quartet was Tug of War, the Paul McCartney solo album. So he was in, as you would expect of someone of his vintage, he was in very mainstream territory, George Martin, and he mm. only agreed to produce the album because his daughter was a fan of Ultravox. <laughs> so he had no great passion for he the band. He wasn't an Ultravox and, fanatic. He was probably uh, more of a John Fox man in terms be. of sonic experimentation. Did, did, Deep down, but but certainly in terms of when I mean, we were talking about Rolf Harris and status quo, the fact that George Martin became one of very few people to work with the Beatles, Spike Milligan and Ultravox. George Martin having produced a lot of comedy records, um, including uh, I think My Boomerang Won't Come Back. So to go from My Boomerang Won't Come Back to Reap the Wild Wind, I think is... Quite something for, and if you if you've never heard my boomerang won't come back, I can thoroughly recommend listening to the censored version on on YouTube. So can I finish this podcast by playing that song? <laughs> Please don't. <laughs> that will ruin any credibility we may ever have had. If we look back on their career, you know, it's obviously a matter of splitting them into into two. And early Ultravox is maybe more significant in a post-punk sense than later Ultravox. What's extraordinary about the band, uh, how they influenced hundreds of bands, like, like the Velvet Underground before them, not many people bought the particular pivotal album, but almost everyone who bought it formed a band. And I think you could say that about the John Fox era Ultravox in relation to Systems of Romance. And for me, they'll always be the archetypal electronic band. And I think you can't overstate their influence on music in the late 70s, early 80s and beyond. <laughs> 